I think Jesus was really ahead of his time here. He, uh, long before Netflix, you know how Netflix uh, releases a whole season at, at a time so you can binge watch? Jesus kind of does that with a trilogy of stories here that you can sit back and binge listen to three parables in a row about lostness, foundness, joy, and parting. The first two kind of seem benign enough. I mean, it is a little bit strange that uh, someone would let 99 sheep wander rather um, uh, rather than cutting their losses and trying to find one and moving on to spend and expend such time and energy turning over your whole house in order to find just one coin. Both the shepherd and the woman seem to have, depending on how you look at it, either a gift or a curse of being able to obsess over one possession while you have more. Human beings don't generally act that way. Has anyone ever taken a like intro econ class? Yeah. Yeah. There's something really built into us. Uh, and they've codified it in a law called the law of diminishing returns. They teach you that you might pay, you know, $8 for the first hamburger, but if someone were to give you 99 of them, you'd probably give the 99th away because you don't have the appetite for it. The first two parables give us a glimpse through somewhat unlikely characters, a shepherd and a woman, that that math isn't going to work for the kingdom, that Jesus has a new logic, a new mathematics, and Jesus takes this for granted. He says, what woman wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the whole house until she finds it? The God who he's speaking for possesses something far more curious, far more insatiable, that the last 1% means just as much or more than the first 99. And the one coin is worth unsecuring the whole bag. And then rather than covering up the fact that one here or there got away, like I do, I I would be so embarrassed that I was turning over my house or that I lost it in the first place. Instead, these characters call all the neighbors to celebrate getting them back. And then in the third story, Jesus drops the bombshell that there is a, quote, certain man with two sons. We learn anything about how the parables work It's that we can't be lazy by jumping to conclusions about what they're actually about. Rather than the prodigal, quote-unquote, let's focus on that certain man. The certain man had not only one son but two. And and remember, we're reading this in a group of parables. Um, So like the shepherd, like the woman, we have to assume that this certain man was in jeopardy of losing something or maybe losing someone. That's the setup. But then right off the bat, the scene opens with a death. (laughs) You you didn't read that? Uh, You're like, what translation are you reading? Well, it's a really subtle death. It's not a bloody massacre. There's no crime scene. But rather, the youngest son tells his dad that he'd be better off operating as if he had no dad at all or as if his dad was dead. Execute the will. Give me what's mine. We'll part ways. No feelings hurt. Yeah, right. The son unfathers his father. 
and then moves on to greener pastures with his inheritance in hand to do as he pleased. Yeah, exactly. To do all the things he pleased, all the things that please him. Right around here in the story, we start to see something revealing showing up. Fake abundance, scarcity, lack, fear. These are the things that are starting to drive the narrative. Wealth gets turned into waste and resources get squandered. There was a shortage of food and a surplus of need. <coughs> the further we get away from the Father, isn't that what happens with us too? The more distant our ways get from God's ways, and then all of a sudden there aren't enough hours in the day. There isn't enough space in my brain. There's not enough money in my checking account. I don't have enough emotional bandwidth to deal with all the demands of my life, let alone the demands of other people. Like those Israelites, we confuse abundance and slavery and we often choose the former. We often chase the former and choose the latter. We chase abundance. We choose slavery. When the whole time God has been offering us enough, indeed more than enough. While we're surrounded at all times by grace, we live in a world that we didn't create and that we don't sustain and that we're not in our own efforts renewing. We, we seek something else, something that won't quench us. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Henry Nouwen puts this really well. and he, There's so many good books on the story of the prodigal. I'd really recommend Henry Nouwen's Return of the, Return of the Prodigal Son. And he puts it, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. We spurn those who know us best, even and especially the one who knows every hair on our heads. We look for adventure, for mystery, for the road, for love, for pleasure, <coughs> for the chance even just to figure it out for ourselves. We simultaneously crave and resent this place. We have a complicated relationship with home. So we see there's this grand climax in the parable where the boy is out far away from home, out in the far country, on the road, and then he comes to himself. The Greek is kind of like he, he comes into his right mind. He has a change of heart and mind. He repents. He wakes up to the fact that he's face down in pig slop. And the idea that being one of his dad's employees, even with kind of a tail between his legs shame, would be far better for this life that he's made for himself. So he turns and he goes home. Marilyn Robinson wrote a trilogy kind of imagining and contextualizing this parable. Three novels, Gilead, Home, and Lila, and they're wonderful. And she gets this really well in her middle book, this dramatic turn. She says, weary or bitter or bewildered as we may be, 
God is faithful. God lets us wander so we'll know what it means to come home. And the story says, so he got up and he went to his father, or he kind of thought he got up and he was going to his boss, but the father never stopped being his father, even when he did everything in his power to unsun himself. So we refocus on that certain man, the father who was foolish enough to leave the porch lights on all those years. I imagine his neighbors thought he was an idiot, thought he was wasting <laughs> wasting the energy, wasting the hope. This father who never stopped checking the obituaries or the arrest records, hoping, praying that he wouldn't see Junior's name in there, or maybe that he would just so he'd have closure. That, quote, dead father who would give it all away again in a heartbeat just to get his son back. Our parable says, while he was a long way off, the father catches a glimpse of him and puts the wheels in motion to, uh, to undo and outdo all the culture of scarcity and lack and shame that his son had been swimming in and he was moved with compassion. And this is a rich word. This isn't just this like touchy-feely word. This is a churning of the guts. This is a suffering with that the father feels every bit of what the son looked like in his very body. Even when his son had a hard time calling him dad, the father didn't have a hard time calling him son. So he takes off in a sprint. Notice the postures and the movements here. First, the father has this vision, always looking towards the horizon. A long way off, he saw him and had compassion. There's compassion before there's even approach. Father is always looking, always going, always anticipating, always hoping. Then the, there's that movement. There's vision and then there's movement that the father ran to him. Much has been made about the indecency of this all. And for an ancient Near Eastern uh, head of the household, uh, breaking stride would be uh, really embarrassing. Uh, an older man would never, you know, hitch up their robe and show their ankles in in running. So everyone comes to you, but not this father. This father is going. <coughs> picture, picture your dad, however old your dad is. Picture your dad in like a full dead red sprint right now. Picture how funny that would look. Like picture his face. Picture how his body and his muscles are moving. And just that he is running as fast and as urgently, not out of fright, but out of, out of love and out of like desire um, at you, towards you. Or maybe he's racing. My dad um, is was always faster than us. A couple years ago, he stopped racing us. Maybe he assumed that that's when, uh, when we were going to overtake him. But he was always crazy sneaky fast like oftentimes barefoot he would beat us in races and uh, picture your dad like this as well we'll show these um these photos of this movement um that are happening in this famous rembrandt piece the return of the prodigal son but long before the the end uh product in 1669 there are these sketches and there are these series of sketches and you can see um, from the first one in 1935 or then in 36, 
and uh, even in 37, there, there's there's this uh, picture. It's a self-portrait of him in a brothel. These are a little unsavory images. And you can see there's a lot going on with uh, Rembrandt in this time in the mid to late 30s where he's digesting this parable. He's seeing himself in this parable. Notice his hair matches the hair of the prodigal son in these pictures. But notice also that this is all happening kind of on the on or inside the stoop of, of the father's house. There's not a, a lot of outward movement. The son has to come back. Now, and then there's this undated um, etching. But now notice in the final product, this 1669, this really famous, famous classic Rembrandt with, all, with the amazing uh, lighting um, and these characters that are all representational. Notice we don't see the son's face, but the son's head is shaved. Notice the son's clothes are golden, and they look beautiful in the context of the father's robe. But without the father's robe, they're disgusting rags. They're yellowed with body odor and pig slop. They smell like the brothels where he's been. Uh, we've seen a transformation in this 30 years of how Rembrandt is seeing himself and how he's reading this parable. And also notice that this is not inside the house, but it's outside. There's, there's been movement out. The father is going to the son. So there's vision, there's movement. And then there's an embrace. There's this hug and a kiss. And the hug is neither a tackle nor it's like, nor is it like a high school head nod. Do you remember that? Uh, I used to do that kind of in high school you'd acknowledge someone. It was kind of a way to do it with like kind of cool remove from them. You just kind of give them a little head nod to know that you saw them, but uh, you wouldn't bring it in for the real thing, right? Um, but the father has an unhesitating willingness to press himself in intimacy to a son who probably smells like the sin and betrayal of his wanderings. There's plenty of room for the son to fall into his arms. And inside that little space between them is grace and hospitality, making possible and making room. In preparing for this, I, I reread a classic book by Miroslav Volf called Exclusion and Embrace. And he has this amazing extended section on the theology of a hug or like the phenomenology describing really vividly the phenomenon of a hug and you've probably never thought so much about how hugs work. Uh, maybe um, for you they, they just do work and you know how to do them but uh, if you've ever had a bad hug, either someone that, that doesn't know where to put their arms or someone who lingers too long, maybe, maybe you're the one doing that. Um, uh, it, maybe it's helpful to look at these four parts. So he breaks them down into four parts. There are four kind of structural elements in a movement of an embrace or a hug. The first one is the opening of the arms, signaling that you are open, that you are willing, that you are calling for an embrace. But then there's a waiting. If you just open your arms and you don't wait, you might be discouraged, you might close down, you might walk away uh, if someone doesn't immediately respond to you. So you can see in, in both the opening and the waiting, there's uh, great vulnerability. 
there's great risk. You don't know if there's going to be reciprocation. So there's opening the arms, there's waiting. Then there's the closing of the arms around the person who's approached you. You, you, you close them in and you bring them near. And finally, you open them up again. If you don't open them up again, it's something like uh, a tackle or a, um, a grab. You, you have to open them up again for them to give them space to move away again, for, to give them space to retreat or to leave. And that too ends in vulnerability. The, the embrace, the hug starts and ends in vulnerability. For embrace to happen, all four of these have to be here and they all have to follow in an unbroken sequence. If you stop after the first two, it would completely abort the embrace. But if you stop with the third, the closing of the arms, that would pervert this from an act of love into an act of oppression and and maybe even accidentally even an act of exclusion if you're just grabbing, if you're controlling, if you're coercing. These four elements then are four essential steps to an integrated movement and embrace. And so the father continues in these postures, vision, movement, embrace. There's also an interruption. The father interrupts, and we we might think that an interruption is necessarily rude. But the father interrupts the scripts and excuses that the son has internalized and then clothes the son. So interruption and clothing go together. There's like an interruption and a replacement. For typically being considered a parable almost exclusively about repentance, the son's admittance that I've sinned against you gets cut off. He's rehearsed this. It's that hard thing that he's, he's played through in his mind, how it was going to go, and all the possible pitfalls so he can anticipate them and avoid them. And he starts to get his script off the ground, and it gets cut off, and he gets re-wardrobe in a manner fitting of a son. Robe, ring, shoes. I think this is also telling that the father had these items on hand. Not only has he had the porch lamp burning, but he's had the robe, the ring, and the shoes ready and waiting. He had always hoped, he had always known, he had planned for the day when his son would come home. And then finally, there's a feast. There's feasting. What if the whole of our Christian life is growing into the type of people who can throw this sort of kingdom party, this sort of homecoming? Following Christ means party planning. Following Jesus means party planning. It means that we're going to have to grow in our movement. We're going to have to mimic this going sent movement that God has been working through forever. Having first sent God's Son and God's Son sent the Spirit in the same way we go. Our homecoming parties are pop-up kingdom parties. And we meet people in places of their deepest hurt, in places of their furthest distance. Because as Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death, life, and angels, rulers, present things, future things, powers, heights, depths, or anything that has been created. Nothing can separate us. And this is good news for us, that no distance, not even our own sin or rebellion, can separate us from the love of the Father in Jesus. We sang earlier about um, uh, all ye refugees come in, welcome home. 
this love of God welcomes home refugees, either of our own making, like the prodigal, or of the making of others, people who have been spurned and spun out into the far country, into a place that wasn't their home, can come home, can find their home in God. If following Jesus means party planning, it means that we'll be an embracing people. More than a handshake, but bringing it in for the real thing. Since we've experienced that, God's open arms shown to us in Christ's spread arms on the cross, which we've stepped into and allowed him to enclose us in. And we'll do the same without fear, without hesitation, because the Father puts no intermediate steps between forgiveness and celebration. So neither should we. And forgiveness is the boundary between exclusion and embrace. And the Father has already made up God's mind which way this whole thing will go. Forgiveness. Embrace. If following Jesus means party planning, it means we'll grow adept at being interrupted and clothed. That we will. We're the prodigal. That we'll have all those old scripts and excuses that run through our heads. How we'll be satisfied to deny grace and just get by. How we're no longer sons and daughters. How home is no longer home. And how we can never belong or believe. How home no longer exists. And to that the Father will interrupt us. And we'll begin preparations for a feast. We'll be clothed with all the trappings of beloved family, ring, robe, and shoes. We'll be remade into daughters and sons. We'll be called found. We'll be called alive. You see, that first death was the death of the father becoming unfathered. Now it becomes the very way for the dead son to come back to life. And this is resurrection. This is new creation, death, yet life. A God who dies so that we might live a God who dies so that we might be raised. This is the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. But there's a character we've forgotten in all this. We've forgotten that older brother in, in uh, the Rembrandt picture. He's somewhere back in the shadows, barely uh, showing his face. The father's extravagance isn't un undone or outdone by the younger son's pale imitation of extravagance. And neither is it undone by the older son's stinginess. In the middle of all this lostness and death, lostness and death will have no place in the father's house. The elder brother needs to be interrupted also. Because he's all too used to that status quo. He'd become uncomfortable not having a younger brother. He had been, he had become comfortable with death. Throughout the story of the scripture, God's people are constantly reminded to welcome the outsider because they once were outsiders to God's life and purpose. It's hard to remember sometimes what it was like without a steady stream of outsiders becoming insiders, of lost and dead daughters and sons becoming found and alive daughters and sons in our midst. That's why it's so important for us to continue to welcome and celebrate people who are finding life because it gives us new life. It reminds us when we were dead in our transgressions, when we were far and we didn't know God, or when we purposely went far, <clears throat> it reminds us what homecoming feels like. Every weekend can be a homecoming. 
And here Jesus leaves us hanging, though, with these two brothers. Will there finally be a feast for the older brother? This is kind of how Luke's gospel plays things. We're left with the same sort of tension of that rich young ruler had to reckon with what Jesus was asking. Remember that? And Jesus asked him, he he had all these great answers to Jesus' questions. So Jesus uh, finally put it to him, sell all you have and give to the poor. And, And we're told that the rich young ruler went away sad for he had many possessions. But we're not told if he went away sad because he knew it would be hard and he actually pulled the trigger and did it, or he knew it would be hard and he knew he couldn't or wouldn't ever do it. We're, we're stuck in that moment, in that tension, in that claim on the older brother. We too are stuck with that claim that we have to give up whatever claim that we might have and join with the Father's movement, that we might lean also into God's embrace. If you're like me, I'm more of an older brother type. Maybe that's good news to you that you need to cling to is that Jesus is our true elder brother, where we screw it up, where we are stingy, where we don't have an imagination for life and new creation, that Jesus has that. Jesus is that. Jesus takes it upon him very self, his very body, to free this world from lostness and death, and who with the Father looks and goes and throws each and every last wandering daughter and son a party that they've been found, embraced, interrupted, clothed, and invited to a homecoming party. So where this hits the road for us, Oak Church, is I hope that we can continue to grow um, as a site of homecoming and embrace. To do that, I think, it means we're going to have to grow in our sense of home, our ability to recognize farness from home, a call to and a celebration of homecoming. I don't think I'm very good at this. I'm not sure we know how to do this very well. It's okay to name farness because if you, if, if you stop um, in, if you stop saying that people are far, uh, it, it becomes hard to come near. If, if you stop developing an imagination for home, then the road becomes your home, and that's really no home at all. It, it's really difficult to do this, and we need to struggle through this together. I, I think it involves something like destigmatizing and normalizing, asking for help and, re- and also receiving help, naming our struggles, even naming our mistakes. When we don't do that, we, we either end up alienating people who are far from home because they want to come home. They just don't know how to ask or where to go. Or maybe we alienate ourselves. A beautiful thing in Jesus' imaginative story is that for as far as the younger son got, and as much as he did in his own efforts to destroy home, when it came down to it, home was still a possibility and his family was still there. Even though he chose not home, He was never mistaken that home still existed and that homecoming was still possible. That that we would do some of this work to further our sense of home so that we could be home, that we could find our home in God together, and as a community we could witness to that and manifest that for, for, for ourselves and also for our neighbors in this place. So we need to grow in our sense of home. I also think we need to grow in our huggability. 
Remember that theology of the hug? Grow in our ability to open our arms and to wait. That means having courage and being vulnerable, putting ourselves out there. You know, for as ridiculous as you feel when you put up a high five and someone leaves you hanging, I think hugs, uh, like unrequited hugs, are even worse because you're just wide open. And, and, and if someone doesn't hug you back, you look really foolish. And I think we need to put ourselves out there. And, and, then, and then put ourselves out there in our closing of arms around people who actually are brave enough to come. And there's a lot of messiness in being with and being for and being changed by uh, the people that we are embracing. If someone comes to you off the streets, <laughs> they're, they're going to smell and that smell is going to rub off on you. And you can choose for that to be repulsive or you, you can choose for that to be an aroma of God's own presence with us. And finally, that we might open our arms again. And we might not be coercing or smothering or grabbing or controlling. You're going to lose people this way because because people are going to go. People are going to leave you. And I think we do an okay job at, of sending people and recognizing this sort of movement. So we need to grow in our hugability, opening, waiting, closing, and opening again. And lastly, I think we need to grow in participation of God's joy. Our ability not only to experience God's extravagant and unmerited welcome, but also to realize that when someone is trying to come home to us, have a homecoming among us, we have a chance to act like and play forward the loving father in the story. I'm not talking about like playing God. I'm saying when someone comes to you and is vulnerable, does ask for help, needs something of you, it's often my impulse to, to kind of be offended or to feel awkward, to not know what to do. Why would you come to me? But in this story, we, 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 we can be the father figure. We can welcome them home. And I don't think this has to be arrogant. I don't think this has to be like paternalistic. I think I, I ran across this quote somewhere in my preparation that says that we can claim the authority of true compassion. That's not an authority that we're better or that we're altogether different. Our authority is based on our gut-churning, co-suffering compassion with God. This is the joy. This, it's a small detail to gloss over, to gloss over, but in the previous story with the woman turning over her house to look for that lost coin, it says that joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. You've probably heard that in Sunday school. They throw that, something along the lines of the angels throw a party um, when, when someone comes um, into God's embrace or when someone is found or when someone gets new life. And I think that's true, but it's a small detail. It says, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels. Reading that again a little closer, it says the joy is not... God is not the audience to the joy. The angels are the audience to God's joy. Listen to that. <laughs> well, what might that mean that God's joy is explosive and outpouring? 
that the angels are being infected with God's joy and and, and this world is, is being poured out with this profuse joy, the joy of the good shepherd, the joy of the searching householder, the joy of the loving father. And I, I don't think I ever noticed that. Maybe it's an, another sermon for another day, but the, this, this whole chapter, Luke 15, these three parables, it's downright Trinitarian, a good shepherd, an absurd householder, the spirit, and a loving father, all evincing this massive, uncontainable joy all for homecoming, all for finding what was lost, all for giving life to that which was dead. Will you all pray with me? Lord, you tell us to come on up to the house. Come back. Come home. There's folks in here today who, who just need to know that home is possible in that you have never turned off the, the porch light. That you have a ring and robe and shoes for us to call us daughters and sons, even when we've stopped calling you dad. Thanks for, for never stop loving and never stop looking. Thanks for never being grossed out by us or unwilling to embrace us. And thanks for calling us into this movement when we stand back and are stingy like the elder brother. Thanks for Jesus, our true elder brother, who shows us what this is all about and how to throw parties. Thanks for calling us in to your uncontainable, uncontrollable love and joy. Thanks for welcoming us home. Amen.